1: Hello, everyone. I'm CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today, I'm speaking with Martha Conway about her third novel, Sugarland. Set in 1921, Sugarland takes place mostly in Chicago, where prohibition is in full swing and Al Capone is riding the bootlegging train to gangster stardom. The Great Migration of African Americans away from the Jim Crow laws of the U.S. South has just begun, but the story begins outside Chicago in a small town. Oxy, Illinois, 1921. At two in the morning, the trains were stopped for the night, and the old wooden depot, manned only during the day now that the Great War had ended, was deserted. Eve could see her breath in the cold January air as Gavin Johnson helped her up the last step of the empty train car. Then he jumped up himself. He moved closer, and she smelled whiskey and something musky he splashed on his face. He pressed her against the rail and began to kiss her with lips cold at first but getting warmer. "'That was all right.' "'She turned her head and kissed him back, "'a feeling of steam moving up through her body. "'The night was so still, "'it was like a creature holding its breath. "'She pulled away for a moment. "'How'd you get a key to the train car?' "'Gavin just laughed. "'Let me put out the light.' "'He opened his lantern's tiny glass door "'to blow out the flame, "'and in the darkness Eve followed him into the empty car. "'Her blood was still warm from the corn whiskey "'she had drunk with the boys after the show.' And she felt a little light-headed. Here she was with a handsome man late at night alone, her heart beating hard. Before her, the rows of worn velvet seats were like people turning their backs. For some reason, this excited her more. Nice at night, don't you think, Gavin asked, taking her hand. And now, please join me in welcoming Martha Conway. Hi, Martha. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. Hi, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's my pleasure. So Sugarland, as I mentioned in the introduction, is your third novel, uh, following 12 Bliss Street, uh, which was an Edgar Award nominee, and Saving Forest, which won the North American Book Awards in Historical Fiction for 2014, among other titles. Um, you also treat, teach uh, creative writing. So what made you want to write fiction and how did you get started?
0: Well, I think like a lot of writers, I wanted to write ever since I can remember. Um, when I was younger, I, I even just liked forming the, the letters of the alphabet, and I used to write on the wallpaper, much to my parents' um, dismay. Uh, but it's something that I just have always wanted to do ever since I can remember.
1: Okay, and once you once you got past the wallpaper stage... Once I got past the <laughs> wallpaper stage, uh, things got a lot easier
0: and more transportable. I did not really start any formal training until graduate school. I went to San Francisco State University to get my master's in creative writing, and that was a really good um, way of just getting writing into my daily habit and, and sort of incorporating it into my life. So, and of course, I learned a lot as well, but I think um, what I say to a, a lot of writers who are thinking of going to a graduate program uh, in creative writing is that one of the great benefits is just to start doing it and start doing it on a scheduled basis. Because so many people want to write, but they just... They don't have that structure, and sometimes it's easier if you get it from outside yourself. So that's how I began. I, I, uh, I went to graduate school, and then I was just uh, writing by myself, but I always had writing groups. You know, they would sort of change as people came in and out, um, but I think that's another important factor, at least for me, was... Getting feedback and feeling like I was not writing so much in isolation because writing can be a very solitary. I mean, it is a very solitary process, but it doesn't have to always be that way.
1: Yeah, I think I mean, I think it it makes a difference if you have the right group, but the right group is enormously useful I have a wonderful critique group which has been together now for eight years and it really made all the difference to my writing because apart from anything else it's really hard to get out of your own head it's hard to see what other people don't get from the description on the page and and I've I've needed to have that feedback that you know I didn't understand why this character was doing this I didn't understand what was happening here um, because it's easy yeah. to fit in too much information, but it's also easy not to give people enough.
0: That's right, especially when you're doing historical fiction, because there's so many great details. And sometimes I know I get focused on something I really want to write about, and I, I, it doesn't occur to me that there's anything confusing about it. So, yeah, it's great to get that feedback.
1: So, um, for 12 Bliss Street, that's not a historical novel. Tell us a little bit about that, what the big idea is
0: there. Sure. Well, 12 Bliss Street is um, its a mystery, and it's set in modern day, or what was then modern day San Francisco. And before that, I had been writing literary short stories, and I'd gotten them published in magazines, but I felt... I felt as though, even though I loved reading literary fiction for myself as a writer, I wanted to write about something that really happened. Um, that's how I put it to myself. I wanted to write a, a story where something happens, and I had been reading a lot of—I'd um, been reading a lot of mysteries. And these days, I sort of say to a lot of writers, no matter what you write, it's great training for yourself as a writer to write a mystery because there are so many parts of mysteries that in some way or another are the same parts as any other kind of novel. And I did not know that it was Chiclet when I was writing it. (laughs) That was something that my my publisher told me. And for me, it was more just uh, writing a mystery where you had to layer in clues and you had to layer in details. And basically, you know, the way I think of it is, it's how I taught myself the fundamentals of moving a plot forward. Um, just very briefly, the plot is, it's a sort of tongue-in-cheek story about a woman who's tired of her boss, and she's tired of her landlord, and, and even her ex-husband, they're all kind of disrespecting her, and she decides to take control, um, and then gets more than she bargained for. So that's the sort of background of it, and and so layering in how she how she develops as a character within that mystery, I think is was really good training for any kind of novel writing.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, it was described in one of the quotes on your website as a funny upbeat chick, a funny upbeat chicklet mystery, which I thought was a really fantastic combination of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, from there, you jump back uh, in time for Thieving Forest, which I actually must have seen on um, one of my Amazon.com recommendations or something, and I was too busy at the time to pick it up, but I thought it looked really interesting, even the first time I saw it. And now, of course, I'm talking to you about it, which is even better. But uh, tell us how you got from modern-day San Francisco to the U.S. frontier.
0: Sure. Well, um I'm from Ohio, so the setting was kind of natural for, for me, and the way I got there was that, well, in college, I was a, a history and, and an English major, and I sort of always wanted to write something that was set in the past, um, and but also nervous about writing something that was set in the past because of all the research that it would entail. But it turned out as I started writing it that I really loved the research part. And in fact, for me as a writer, the, the research, learning about these cultures and the way people lived in another uh, era, in another culture, always helps me to find my way into the story. So usually I get, I get, I like to do a lot of, um, you know, hand accounts, I like to read a lot of firsthand accounts and interviews and memoirs if they're available. And um, in terms of Thieving Forest, it's a novel about five sisters, and I come from a family of, of seven girls, so I have six sisters. I decided ultimately, and no brothers, and I decided ultimately that seven seven women were really just a bit too hard for the reader to keep track of. So I whittled it down to five. Um, and they're from Ohio, as I said, which is where I'm from. So that was sort of the impetus. That's that's where I started from. And um, the reason... So Thieving Forest is kind of a quest novel. Um Four sisters are kidnapped, and one goes out looking for them. So the youngest sister is the one who is looking for her four older sisters. And, uh, and along the way, she changes. Again, I always try to build in character change, no matter what kind of novel I'm writing. And um, at the time, I was reading a lot of Patrick O'Brien and the seafaring novels, and I really wanted to write a novel in which there was um, an adventure or a quest and there was a woman at the center of it and so that's what thieving forest became
1: that's great and now st martin's published the first novel um and the other two are published by noontime books which is is you is that right or that's right mm-hmm. yeah and, and how did that exp- i mean what made you decide to go that route and how has that worked out for you
0: It's been really, really wonderful and empowering and interesting and hard and um, (laughs) time-consuming. It's been a lot of things. Uh, So I started out with Thieving Forest. I tried to sell it in the traditional way. I had an agent and so on, but it didn't happen. Um, My agent was really very, very supportive, and she said that she really believed in Thieving Forest. She believed that there were readers out there for it, and... So let's see. This was around 2013, 2014, and I hadn't really considered self-publishing before. But I started to look into it, and of course, I live in San Francisco in the Bay Area, so there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of technical expertise. So that piece of it, I felt like I could get help with or or learn, and. Um, as I started to look into it, I realized that I really, I it was something that was possible and it was something that I wanted to do. And I so believed in Thieving Forest. Um, as I said, you know, it was a little bit based on my family, although 200 years prior to when we're living, and it was just a very personal story for me. So I really wanted to feel like that project was completed. And my my goal was to uh, sell as many copies as I had sold of 12 Bliss Street, which frankly, between you and me and everybody else who's listening, was not very much. Um, so I thought I might be able to do it. And in fact, I sold, I think now it's nine or ten times as many as I had sold with my traditionally published book. So that was very... That was a very positive experience and um, and there were a lot of things that really were very satisfying to me, like being able to choose my own cover and what the interior would look like now i didn 't do any of that myself because I 'm not a visual person. I was sort of like a contractor. I hired out to various people who you know were designers um, but but having that control was was not something I had my first time around, and it was okay, but it was it was nice and surprising and interesting to have it with thieving forest.
1: That's great. those are really impressive sales numbers. Um, how did you manage to do that?
0: well i <laughs> I don't know exactly how it happened. I think it it started off slow and the, you know, with with traditional publishing, they um, they print a certain number of copies and they they send it out to bookstores, and the bookstores have it for about six weeks, until or maybe six weeks, it may be much less until the new crop comes out and then they rotate, right? And so, I found at least for my book, I really only had that six week window of when I could sell it, and. Um, and and this was even before e-books. So although 12 Bliss Street is now available as an e-book, when it first came out, it was only available as a hardcover. So I think that makes it kind of a hard sell for an unknown writer. Um, but Thieving Forest came out as an e-book. It came out as a as a paperback. Um, it came out as a, as a hardcover all at the same time. And since it's print-on-demand, it can stay available forever. So even though it started off slowly, it started snowballing around um, the Christmas 2015. And then there are a lot of ways to promote your books online these days, which weren't available for 12 Bliss Street um, you can put it on sale. You can get a promotion from a promotion company like Fussy Librarian or BookBub. Um, all of those things really help to get the word out there. And I think once people start reading a book, if it's a good book, they start to tell their friends, you know, that's really what you want to happen. In fact, I heard somebody recently say um, at a, on a panel I was on, she said, you know, books are really sold through word of mouth. And I thought, that's very true. However, word of mouth these days is not just your next-door neighbor. It's also Twitter and Facebook and Pinterest and every other kind of social media you and people like you might, might be uh, looking at every day. So I think all of those factors really help to make it a success.
1: Well, that's good to know. I mean, yes, I think you're absolutely right that books are sold by word of mouth. And the problem, I think the the problem you have as a new author, if your trade published is, as you say, the six weeks. I mean, that's hardly any time to discover anybody. And it, God forbid, you know, that you should, that your book should come out the same time as some big bestseller. Uh but the hard thing about being self-published is just getting the word out, getting enough people to hear you that when they start to tell their friends, it snowballs, as you say. So congratulations. That's really good news. Thanks. Thank you. So uh, this brings us to Sugarland, Land, um, which is the main topic of our you uh, today. And it's, again, it's, it's still historical fiction, but it's very different from Thieving Forest uh, in, in terms of its subject matter. What drew you to this story?
0: Well, um, I love the 1920s. It takes place in the 1920s, and I love the setting. I love the atmosphere. I love the slang. I love what people wore. Um, I think that's what initially initially drew me, and I just had a really fun time writing about all of that. Um, One of the things that I wanted to do was write about jazz, very early jazz, because I've always really responded to that music. I I see stories in my head when I hear that music, just like so many other people. I I feel like it touches me on an emotional level, maybe more than any other kind of music, at least for me. And so I I just I wanted to write about it, and I wanted to try to write about music, which I had never done before. I, I'm not a musician by any means, um, but I did start taking piano lessons from my children's teacher about a year ago, and um, it is hard. It is so hard, but it's so rewarding. And I think because I'm not a real musician, I think that My writing about music was sort of a way that I got to be a musician in my head for a little while.
1: It is really hard. I haven't taken piano lessons since I was in high school, and I took it, you know, the sort of classical stuff, which is really hard for a couple of years. And then I had this guy who... I guess he played in bars and things like that, but it, he was great because he he came into the house and he would teach me chords, just like a guitar chord, oh. and, and how you can move the chord, you know, the notes around, um, and play with them. And so it was. It was not jazz, uh, but it was a little bit like jazz in the sense that it was sort of the the basis of what would become jazz because it was improvisational. Unfortunately, he then skipped oh. town because he was supposed to get married and decided at the last minute. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> so one day he just didn't show up and the panelists were over <laughs> Wow! Wow! Well, it was, at least you were really the piano student and not yeah. the bride. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> wow. Yeah. No, I I can totally see that. I would love to have somebody come and just teach me some chords because uh, that's where the feeling is, from what I can tell.
1: Hmm. Well, you did a great job. We'll we'll get back to the music a little bit later, but you did a wonderful job, uh, especially with Lana, uh telling us, you know, what it feels like to her when she's she has been classically trained and she starts to Mm. play jazz it's really great Mm -hmm. thanks Uh, so um so let's get back to the the main story because it is a mystery and so the setup is is kind of important we we won't go to the point of you know giving away crucial details or anything like that but uh, the passage that i read in in the uh, introduction has gavin and eve uh, together in a rail car Uh, but this is a novel so of course you know what looks like it's going to be a nice evening, suddenly turns into something that's very different and pushes them into a very different place. So tell us a little bit about what happens.
0: Well, Eve Reiser is a, a jazz piano player who is what they call on the circuit. She's traveling around with a band. Uh, in this case, it's called the Stop Time Syncopators. And they go from town to town, usually by train. This is night. 1921. And they play shows. And in the beginning of the novel, she and another member of the band that she's with, um, a man named Gavin Johnson, is they're having a tryst in a in an empty train car um, after the show, midnight or later. And, uh, you know, they're just sort of starting to get going when they are interrupted. And um, there's a little bit of a mystery. The man who interrupts them seems to know Gavin. And I don't know how much I should give away, but it doesn't end well. Let's put it that way.
1: Okay. Um, And then one of the factors here is, and it becomes more and more of an important element in the novel, is that Gavin and Eve are both African-American. And so the fact that they are involved in this unfortunate incident it um, it has particular repercussions for them that it would not have, uh, if, especially for Gavin if he
0: were white. That's right. So the man who interrupts them is white, and there's an accident and he's killed. And the fact that Gavin is African American and they're in the South uh, pretty much means that if, if people find out, he will die probably an unpleasant death. And... So they have to cover up the crime, and um, and he decides that he has to stay where he is. If he runs, everybody will, will know it's him. So they decide that Eve should be the one to deliver this message to a man in Chicago, and she's um, she has been in Chicago before this, and also her stepsister, a woman she's very, very close to, is a nightclub singer in Chicago, so it makes sense for her to say, "Oh, I got, uh, you know, a message, and I have to leave."
1: So, um, so Eve goes north to Chicago, and um, Gavin goes south to continue on his tour. Uh, tell us a bit about Eve's past, uh, about and her sister's past, her stepsister's past, Chicky's past. Mm-hmm. Where does she come from?
0: Yeah, Eve. Eve, um, Eve comes from Pittsburgh, and she she is modeled loosely on a woman, a jazz pianist and composer named Mary Lou Williams, who is this fantastic, fantastic um, piano player and composer who who lived. She's a little she's a little bit younger than than Eve, but. She came from Pittsburgh. And I also took some details of Eve's Pittsburgh background from the piano player Earl Hines, who is also from Pittsburgh. So um, she and Chickie, Chickie is her stepsister. Eve was born into a family of musicians. And her, um, and this is more like Earl Hines. Her father was a. A professional musician. Her mother went to Fisk University, which was a, a university for African Americans, and she, um, she got a degree in music. But when she died, Eve's father married another woman who was an alcoholic and came with Chickie, whose father was white, and that's all they knew about Chickie was was that fact they never see she's never seen her father she has no idea even what his name is um and even chicky are very close in age and they bond they both love music they're both very talented chicky as a singer and eve as a piano player and they plan when their children to leave home together which they do and um When the novel opens, Chickie is singing in Chicago, and Eve, as I mentioned, is on the circuit.
1: So even getting to Chicago isn't that easy, because in 1921, quote-unquote, good women don't travel alone uh, still. And Mm -hmm. uh, Eve has a hard time getting there, but it's not going to be too much way to say that she does succeed, because otherwise the rest of the story wouldn't happen. (laughs) So... um, Tell us a bit about her as a personality. What what does she what does this difficult journey reveal about her as a person?
0: Hm, that's an interesting question. Um I like it. What does it reveal about her? Well, I would say she's she shows herself to be very resourceful and smart and um courageous and she 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 has a situation in which she gets into a little bit of trouble through no fault of her own and she finds a creative solution to it and um there are there's more i think this is her train ride she sort of reminisce reminiscence a little bit about her background where she came from and you also learn, the reader learns about, you know, her kind of poor background and her family life and her desire to write music.
1: Yeah, she does come up with a very clever solution. I was, I was impressed with it. <laughs> uh, so, other than the fact that, that you had read about this pianist, why did you choose her as your heroine? Uh, or did she choose you? Did she come to you out of... Well, One of
0: those rightly states, yeah, yeah, kind of the latter, actually. Um, I wrote the first draft at, with uh, another woman as the protagonist. Lena Hardy is a white nurse who is um, very much a part of the story. And the first draft that I wrote, it was pretty much all from Lena's point of view. But Eve was such a compelling character to me, and I really just kept wanting to know more and more about her. So when I was doing my research, I kept gravitating towards her background and what her experiences would have been like. I was, uh, I'm was i not African-American, and I was nervous writing about an American African-American point of view from an African-American point of view. Um, but... I thought I would try it because that's what writers do. We, ha- we have to try these things. And, um, and I think that it's good to, you know, they say, write what you know. Well, I like to write what I don't know because then I feel like I understand something a little bit better than I had before. So when I was deciding to, to make Eve the main character, I mean, there were so many things I liked about her. I liked her resourcefulness. I liked her um, great talent and her desire to be a, a great musician, uh, coupled with her very real concern over her stepsister. And the woman that I modeled her after, Mary Lou Williams, she was the same way. She, I kept reading accounts about how compassionate she was, how she had a very difficult life, but she was always ready to help other musicians, male and female. And, um, you know, I kind of thought to myself, well, I've written from male points of view. Is it so much more different for me to write about an African-American as it is, woman as it is to write about a white male? Like, which which is further from my point of view? I mean, I guess you could argue both... Sides, but um, anyway, I decided to go for it, and uh, I I didn't regret it. I really like I I like how she turned out.
1: Yes, I like her, very much how she turned out. It's interesting. In a, <laughs> I'm unable to talk. It. It's inter- an interesting point that you raise uh, about writing what you know. I think it's often really misunderstood. I mean, it can mean all kinds of things. For example, my Russian series is very much what I know. That other people don't know, but I, I have, I've heard other people say too that it's, it's good to write things that you don't know so well, and I think it's actually, it can be very hard to write what you know too well because you don't have the kind of distance that will help you see what your reader needs to know. Um, that
0: is so true. That is really very true.
1: I mean, it's helpful sometimes to be to know something, you know, to know a little or to be able to research a little and then to use your imagination because then you're asking the same questions that the reader will ask.
0: Yeah, yep. And I think just as an exercise as a human being to, to write about someone or something or a culture or a setting, a place that you don't know, um, Part of what you do as a writer, I think, always, is to try to find some similarity, something in your background that you can pull out and look at that is similar and use. And I think, as a human being, that is, is so necessary to try to understand other people's points of view, um, even if they're alien to your own, and, um, and that's how we, I think, develop compassion and empathy.
1: Yes. And they're finding that that is, in fact, one of the advantages of reading fiction, uh, never mind writing fiction, is that, it, you know, that's a huge advantage of fiction is that it puts you in Mm -hmm. someone else's point of view,
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, which is not really mm -hmm. something
1: we can ever do in real life. We're always kind of imagining what people are, you know, thinking in terms of how it affects us personally. Uh Uh-huh. That's right. Yeah. So um, so I'm glad to be corrected on Lena's spelling. You can see my Russian training coming out there with the Lina. Uh, oh. But, but uh, before we get to her, because she's also a very important part of the story, we talked a little about Chiki, but Chiki and Eve seem to me to be quite different in some ways in personality. Um, they have a very close relationship, as you mentioned, but I don't see them as being all that similar. Eve seems to me much stronger person than Chicky. Is mm-hmm. that how you would mm-hmm. see her,
0: too? Yes, absolutely. Chicky has her strengths, and she's stronger than she first appears. She She's, she's described as being somewhat dreamy, more of the stereotypical artist, and very beautiful. Um, and Eve is beautiful, too, in her own way. And uh, they're not actually related. So... Um, their you know the their their bond is really about their um their shared passion for music and just you know growing up in the same household so um yeah, I would say that eve is is the much stronger character she's the one who's looking out for Chickie and frankly Chickie needs a little bit of looking out after
1: <laughs> yeah she does um, so We have this sister pair, and then you have a brother and sister pair, uh, who Mm -hmm. are white, Rudy Hardy and Lena. And Rudy, I'm not sure how much you want me to say, but Rudy is the man that Eve has been sent to meet. Yes, right. Uh, So she has something that she's supposed to deliver to him. And on the occasion that uh, Rudy and Lena first run into Eve, uh, Lena is actually wearing men's clothes. Yes. Uh, Mm -hmm. Which is an interesting twist. Uh, And they go to the nightclub where Eve has just started playing piano and Chickie is singing. And this, again, is like a a window onto the past of 1921. What is it about going to a nightclub that requires her to dress in men's clothes or makes it advisable to dress in men's clothes? Mm
0: -hmm. Well, she she does it um, on a bet, first of all. But once she... Once she does it, she dresses up in her, in her brother's old army uniform and goes to the club with him and a couple of other friends. And once she's there and she's in the guise of a man, it's probably no surprise that she f- feels um, a sense of freedom that she hasn't felt before. And, of course, it was much more constrained for women back then they couldn't really go to a club by themselves they couldn't as you say really travel by themselves um... and in some way sometimes it was even there were even more constraints on white women than there were for african-american women for instance you would never you would never at that time see a white woman on stage performing um jazz, unless she came from a very, very strong jazz family, like um, the Teagartens. There was a woman, I think it was Norma Teagarten. She did some performing, but, you know, that was out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of musicians, you know, you find one white woman and not many more African-American women, but, um, you know, much more than one. So so Lena really does feel a sort of opening up of possibilities when she dresses as a man and her companions leave and she decides that she can stay, which she never would have done if she was dressed in a dress. (laughs) So yeah, I think that it starts a process for her that begins for the rest of the novel of kind of opening up and exploring who she can be Um, and coupled with that it's the first time she's ever heard jazz music and it just blows her away and she wants to hear more she she was a classical piano player she stopped after she had an accident and couldn't go to her piano lessons anymore as a child but she still carries with her the love of music and when she hears jazz for the first time it awakens something in her.
1: Yes, yeah, so that brings us back to the music. Tell us what, how she, what she experiences when she hears jazz. Well,
0: she's not really sure if she likes it or not at first. It was very, very loud and very, very much faster than, than other kinds of music and a lot of, imp- uh, a lot of improv, as you mentioned earlier. And, um, and she's, she's not sure about it. It's sort of an assault on her senses and part of what she does is is listen to the music of course but part of what she does also is look around at the other people in the club and and their reactions which is just as strong and vibrant as her own and i think that um that made a big impact on her as well i know I don't know if you want to get into this now, but the club that she goes to is what was called a black and tan club, which meant that both white uh, customers and black customers were in the audience, although usually it would just be um, black performers up on the stage. Uh, So I think that mix of black and white, which really um, did not happen very much at that time and in that Place was also exciting and interesting to Lena.
1: Yes, and actually that's the perfect segue because that was the next question I was going to ask. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is really something that gets brought out throughout the novel and although you probably don't want to go too deeply into the details of the plot, I think it's important um, to understand that 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 is an underlying theme in the story because as things go on, uh, Eve and Lena, in particular interact more and more, and it doesn't always uh, sit well with the people around them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did not set out at all to write anything about race, uh, about race relations at that time. I really just wanted to write about um, the music, and I wanted to write about these characters who were trying to unravel this mystery and, um, but as I kept doing research, I kept hitting roadblocks, you know, well, as an African-American woman, you know, uh, Eve would not be able to do this or as a white woman, Lena would not be able to do this. So in order to make it realistic, I had to, I had to add in those, those, uh, sort of those barriers and, and bring up the theme of, of race relations um which is it's a a tricky theme to handle when it 's a sub theme because it 's so important and it 's so dramatic, and the way that whites and blacks interacted with each other back then as now um could be so um incendiary that it really could become the whole plot and and um you know in many books it does and and it makes for an interesting book, but this one wasn't really, that wasn't the main theme. It, it had to stay as a sub-theme. I didn't want to ignore it, but I couldn't let it take over either. So it was a little, it was a fine line to walk down.
1: Yes, I can imagine it was difficult, although actually in some ways it's, it's very powerful just because it's like part of everyday life. You know, I mm. think if you're really going to write a novel about race relations, it, it's very difficult to do. And you really have to, if that's your main focus, I mean, you, it, it, that's another kind of fine line that, to, to get all the sides and make them realistic. And because it's such a, a charged topic and so difficult mm. to write. But there is something to be said for just, as you say, not ignoring it, but really just making it, you know, you can't ride a bus without running into it you can't walk into a house um without it somebody sizing you up to decide whether you belong there and it Mm -hmm. it, that works from both sides you know it it works for lena as well as for Eve. there are moments when people just look at her and like what are you doing here Mm -hmm. it -hmm. makes it very real because it's it's the way that it would you would encounter it in daily life
0: right and I'm sure we've all had those experiences where we've walked into a place and felt people looking at us as though to say, you know, what are you doing here? You're not part of us. So I think that that goes um, into the very core of of um, our, I don't know, human existence, having that feeling. And of course, Eve because she's African-American, has that constantly. And because she's a woman and because she's playing the piano professionally at a time when women, many women didn't do that sort of thing.
1: Right. Yes, all of those things are true. Um, So I do want to talk a little bit about Lena and Rudy as personalities, but also at the club there's uh, there's a character named Marjorie who's just sort of a walk-on, but there's also a character named Pin who does become more important to the plot coming on. So could you talk about the three of them have a sort of overlapping, interacting relationships?
0: Yeah, Marjorie is sort of more your everyday flapper kind of character. Um, she's interested in the new clothes. She wants to try out harem pants and, you know, smoke, and she has her short hair. She's very amused by Lena, who is dressed as a man. Um, she's much more, in a way, modern and forward-thinking in the beginning of the novel than Lena is. And, and Pin is a man who, if you want to talk theme thematically, he's he sort of represents... Um, World War I and the Great War, which just ended a couple of years ago uh, in 1919, 1920. You know, the men were all coming back from the war. And it really, you know, obviously had a big impact on everyone who was involved. And Pin, especially, you know, was in the war and did not really fare that well. He was gassed and, um, and came back a little bit bitter. About his experience, so I, I feel like part of you know another sub theme of sugarland is that the country the United States at that time was was really undergoing this transition from agricultural to industrial for lack of, of better terms. Um, And it was exciting, you know, the 1920s, exciting and modern and fresh and also very scary and anxiety producing. And in fact, in a lot of ways, I think there are parallels to our culture right now as we're making the transition from industrial to technological. There's that same excitement mixed with anxiety. And I think PIN kind of represents that.
1: Yes, that's an interesting parallel, and I agree. Now, uh, I was going to ask you one more question, but I think based on where we've come so far, um, I'm going to leave uh, it dangling that this is really, in a sense, the last moment of normalcy in the novel, Um, that what happens after they leave the nightclub sets off the rest of the events and uh, create the actual mystery, even though, as you mentioned earlier, there is an initial mystery that has been set up, you know, with mm. the death of this man on the train, uh, things really pick up uh, after this moment in the nightclub. And I'm going to ask you instead to, you mentioned research, that you like to do research, that you like to research first-person accounts. Uh, I would imagine for 1920s Chicago, there was a lot of information out there. What, what kinds of research did you do?
0: Yeah, there there was a lot of information. Um Well, one of the great sites, which I'm sure you know about, is the American Memory site on the um, Library of Congress website, and there are all sorts of interviews, especially WPA interviews, of um, Chicago workers at that time, and African American narratives, and women's narratives, and it was wonderful to sit down and, and just read through these transcripts where people talked about their lives, you know, in their own words. Uh, another another really great resource that I used was um, a book called, well, first it was called 56 Portraits in Jazz, and then later it came out again a few years later, and it was 72 Portraits in Jazz. But it was basically a collection of interviews uh, that a man named Whitney Valliette, um conducted with these jazz musicians, the early ones and the later ones. And that was really helpful because uh, these musicians would explain technical terms kind of in, in, in a layperson's voice because they were explaining it to the interviewee. I'm sorry, the interviewer. And so that was really helpful to just hear how, you know, real jazz musicians at that time thought and talked about their music. So, those were two, I think, of my most important resources, as well as I think I mentioned some biographies I read about jazz players and um and people who had gone through the Great War and came out of it, and Chicago at that time, which was just a bustling city on the verge of greatness um, yes, it's lovely to have that kind of information.
1: It sounds really interesting. Um... I, this wouldn't be appropriate for your books, but one of the things I find really useful for the kind of stuff I do are books that are written for children where you can oh, see, yeah. um, mm-hmm. you know, they, they explain in great detail how a fort was constructed or how a castle was built or something like that because they don't take it for granted that the kids know. And so they really lay out all of those things that those of us who haven't been building forts all our lives or whatever <laughs> absolutely Yeah. Need.
0: Oh, I I totally agree. In fact, for Thieving Forts, there was... There was a children's book about a village in, I think it was actually Canada, but kind of a pioneer village and what people did. And I looked at it all the time to figure out, like, well, how do they make sugar? Well, how, you know, how do they break up salt?
1: (laughs) Right, all that stuff that we would Uh once have known, right? Exactly. So I guess musicians trying to explain uh, their craft to non-musicians is is the same kind of thing
0: Mm -hmm, at a more adult level,
1: right? Yeah. So um, we're going to, to close out now, but I remember seeing one quote on your website that I just can't let go without at least throwing it past you. You mentioned that one of the things that someone once told you was never go into a character's mind or heart, and that seems to me like the the opposite of what you want to do in a novel.
0: Yeah, I, I'm sure I don't mention it in... in um Glowing terms, because I I off I also think that that is that's not a rule that I employ. Um, no, I
1: think you said that it was actually the the worst advice you received. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I think that the the teacher who 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 gave me this advice, um, you know, really likes a different kind of writing, which is very distant and a little bit colder and more maybe more cerebral. Um and I I feel like for myself as a reader I want to have a glimpse into those hearts and minds. Um that's what I
1: read for. Yes, yes, me too. So what would you like readers to take away from Sugarland? Well, um I think that
0: I I mean the way that I think of Sugarland is really it's really a historical mystery. It's it's it has it's It's historical fiction with a mystery. That's what I should say. And for me, you know all the elements that I love about great historical fiction, you know that they take you back to a time and a place and a feeling, I think all of that is really where I put most of my attention um, on Sugarland. And the mystery part of it is important, and it moves the story along. But it's not a conventional mystery, I would say. Would Would you agree to that?
1: I would agree to that, yeah. But it is, it, it's a very, I should tell readers, it's a very well-told tale. Uh, it moves quickly. I think I read it in two evenings. Um, oh. and. It's fascinating because it's really this conflict of personalities. I mean, there's there are characters we haven't even mentioned who are quite important to the plot, um, but they do their importance becomes obvious later, which is one of the reasons I didn't bring them up. But the yeah, it's it's really a character study that is played out through this this inciting incident with the with the murder in the train car or the death in the train car, Mm -hmm. and carries all the way through because of the way that people react to things that are going on around them. So in that sense, mm-hmm. it's not a, you know, it's, it's not the kind of mystery that ends up with the detective giving a 30-minute talk about who did this and who did that.
0: <laughs> right, with everybody sitting around the dining room. and Which is yeah,
1: ever so For realistic. The, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, that's a nice way of putting it.
1: So uh, what are you working on now?
0: I am doing my final edits. For um, another historical novel, it's it is not a mystery. It is called *The Floating Theater*, and it should be out next year. And it is a takes place um, in the pre-Civil War era on the Ohio River. And the very brief description is that there's a um, the main character is a. Sort a of little bit socially awkward costume designer, and she gets a job on this riverboat theater that's going down the Ohio River, sort of a ramshackle flatboat theater, and the Ohio River is the natural division between the North and the South. You know, Ohio's on one side, Kentucky's on the other, and my character gets involved with the Underground Railroad.
1: Well, it sounds fascinating, and I I can hear your dog in the background. So I, I, like to let you go. I got a little distracted. Thinking, there's there's my dog. No, she's done wonderfully, as everybody knows who listens to this. My cats usually get in the show. They didn't this time, but it's only. Uh huh. Uh
0: huh. Well, I guess there has to be one pet, right? So, Absolutely. So this time it was Nico.
1: So hi, Nico. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your time with us thank
0: today, Martha. Thank you, Carolyn. It was
1: absolutely a pleasure. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm CP Leslie, and today I've been speaking with Martha Conway about Sugarland. You can find out more about her at www.marthaconway.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at NewBooksHistFic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and, in general, discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. This year, I have added blog posts about books sent to me that, for one reason or another, don't fit into my interview schedule, so the blog is becoming an extension of this channel. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.